when we're looking at or asking the question, how do you pattern an organism? That's really a question of development or developmental biology. The second question is, how does an organism change over time? And that's a much tougher question to answer. And the reason is that from a time scale that we're used to looking at, it's actually really difficult to understand, to have examples of organisms that are changing kind of before and after. So that's a challenge associated with, with, with this type of work. And up until very recently, that challenge made it quite difficult to do sort of comparative studies, the idea of evolution and development. How can you figure out two molecular states of an organism if only one of those organisms is around today? Right? So if something is changing over time, to understand those changes, you need to have sort of a before and an after. What we have right now is a present. Up until, again, very recently, that was a challenge. But now we have developed ways to look back in time. Okay. And this may sound like science fiction. And yet, science has developed ways for us to look back in time. Not using time machines, but using this stuff. And this is DNA. And this is life. Every life form on this planet is encoded by DNA. Every bacteria, every plant, every insect, and every animal is encoded by DNA. It's really the blueprint for you. So DNA is composed of four nucleotides, four base pairs. And those base pairs are adenine, guanine, cytosine, and thymine. Simply changing the order of those four nucleotides is all that's required to create all the diversity of life that we have on Earth today. It may be hard to believe that simply taking four units, an adenine, a guanine, a cytosine, and a thymine, and simply shifting the order of those four nucleotides around can create all the diversity of life that we have on Earth. And yet, if you think about it, a four-digit code is more than enough to do the job. So if you think about it, the talk that I'm giving you here today is being generated on that computer using a simple two-digit code, ones and zeros. And you can think about all the things you can do with computers. Well, imagine what you can do if you actually had a four-digit code composed of Gs, Ts, As, and Cs, adenines, guanines, cytosines, and thymines. So DNA has a four-digit code. It's simply changing the order of those nucleotides around. That encodes the information that makes up you. So there are a couple properties of DNA that I want to talk a little bit about. And the first is to give you a sense for the amount of information that's actually stored in DNA. If we stacked up your DNA from just your body end to end, it would extend from the Earth to Neptune, the farthest planet in our solar system. Remember, Pluto got demoted. That's a distance of about 4.3 billion kilometers. Now, I'm not telling you the whole truth either, because it would extend that distance four times. 
17 billion kilometers from the Earth to Neptune, back to Earth, out to Neptune, back again. But that's how much DNA is in your body if we were to stretch it out. That's also based on a conservative estimate that you're composed of about 10 trillion cells. So I think the take-home message is that DNA is a very efficient storage mechanism and you've got a lot of information in your bodies. And that's really the point that I wanted to make. This is a little um, SD memory card. If you've got a digital camera or a digital video camera, you may have one of these. So this holds four gigabytes of information. It's a reasonable size. If you went out to Future Shop for your camera, you might get an eight gig or a 16 gig, but certainly in that magnitude of storage. Okay. So this thing in my hand holds four gigs of information. Over here, I've got a picture of a human cell. Okay. This holds about 3.2 billion bases. That's, that's 3.2 gigs. So these two things each hold about the same amount of information. And yet they're actually fairly different sizes. This is about 32 millimeters in length. This is about 10 micrometers in length. If I take this memory card that's in my hand, okay, I take the volume of it, and I fill the volume of this memory card up with human cells, I take the equivalent volume of human cells to this memory card and see how much storage capacity human cells have compared to a fairly standard memory size card. Well, in fact, we can fit about 3 billion cells in this volume. Okay. What that means is that if I have a volume of cells this big, or this many cells that fill this up, this wouldn't hold three gigs of information. Okay? A thousand times that is three terabytes. A thousand times that is three pentabytes. And a thousand times that is three exabytes. Times that by three, this holds about nine or ten exabytes of data if these were living cells. Okay. So we've got a long way to go before we can design things that have the storage capacity of a cell. DNA stores information very efficiently, very compactly stores information. And there's a lot of it in a cell, and there's a lot of it in your body. The second point I want to make and that theme is that very small changes in DNA sequence can lead to very dramatic differences in the phenotype or the characteristics of the organism. So all you have to do is look around this classroom right now. Humans are 99.9% .9 identical at the nucleotide level with their DNA. That means that we all share 999 out of 1,000 bases in common of our DNA. And yet, if you look around this classroom, you will see people of all sorts of shapes and sizes, color, facial features. Some of us need glasses, some of us don't. There's an incredible diversity associated with humans. 
And yet it's hard to believe that, that that diversity can come out of one difference out of a thousand nucleotides. And what I'd like to do is to sort of give you a couple of analogies of how this actually works. And then through the rest of today's lectures, I'm going to give you specific examples of how small changes in DNA can lead to dramatic changes in an organism. So first, let's see how altering just a single letter, just change a single nucleotide, how can that have an effect on the DNA sequence? If I take a simple sentence, after a two-hour lecture with Professor Brunetti, I'm going to need to get a lift downtown to a pub. So I need to get a lift. Fairly straightforward sentence. If I change one letter from that sentence, I can completely change the meaning of it. Rather than I need to get a lift, I need to get a life, which is also equally true. All I've done is change one letter, in this case a T to an E, and yet I've completely altered the meaning of that sentence. The same thing happens with your DNA, right? If we just change a single nucleotide, T to a G, for example, we can dramatically alter what that DNA is saying. And to be honest, we don't even need to change a letter. We could just change the punctuation. So we can keep all the letters the same. So here's a couple of sentences. The first sentence, you will be required to work 24 hour shifts. The sentence is saying is you will have to work 24 one hour shifts. Okay. If we change the punctuation, if we change the punctuation, you will be required to work 24-hour shifts. So rather than 24 one-hour shifts, your shifts are now 24 hours long. Okay. Or you will be required to work 24-hour shifts. Okay. So we've got three sentences here. One, you're working one-hour shifts. One, you're working shifts that are 24 hours long. And one, that you're working shifts that are four hours long. I haven't actually changed any of the letters in this sentence. I've just changed the way you read that sentence. And the same thing happens to your DNA. By changing the punctuation, by changing the timing of when a gene, something that encodes a protein, when it's expressed, the timing, or changing the levels by which a protein is expressed, we can alter the effect or the phenotype of an organism. So again, very subtle changes in DNA sequence can lead to dramatic shifts in an organism. And that explains partially why we have such incredible diversity. Again, looking around this classroom, we all differ by only one nucleotide in a thousand. And yet we have this incredible diversity in humans. So what I want to do for the rest of the lecture is to provide you with a couple of examples to illustrate how very small changes in DNA sequence can affect and have a major effect on the phenotype of an organism. And we're going to do that by looking at changes within the protein coding region. So if we actually shift a letter, like the first example that I showed you, and then we'll look at a way where you change the punctuation, 
the way that a, a protein is expressed. And both of these will involve single nucleotide changes, just changing one base. And we'll see what type of effect that has on the organism. So the first thing that we're going to talk about is eye color in humans. So six to 10,000 years ago, there was a mutation that gave rise to blue eye color. And everybody in the world who has blue eyes inherited that mutation from a single individual that lived about six to 10,000 years ago. So how do I know that everybody in this class that had blue eyes and had their hand up, how do I know that you all share a common ancestor? Someone who lived six to 10,000 years ago. Well, I'm going to get to that part of the story. Before I do, I have to give you a little bit of background on how eye color is actually created. And the first thing I have to tell you is that we really don't understand a lot about the genetics of eye color. You may have heard in the past some ideas about eye color genetics, that is that blue is recessive and brown is dominant. Um, and so if you have two blue-eyed parents, you would have blue-eyed kids. But those ideas of eye color are actually incredible oversimplification and probably wrong. If those types of ideas were true, you would have very distinct types of eye color. Everybody with blue eyes would have the same type of blue. Everyone with green eyes would have the same green. Everyone with brown eyes would have the same brown. In fact, you just need to look around at people's eyes in this room to know that there are all sorts of different shades of eye color and that a number of genes play a role in determining uh, the, the type of eye color that you have. So it's not a simple Mendelian, you've got blue eyes, yes, blue, uh, brown eyes, no, type thing. It's actually a complex interaction for most eye color. Blue eye color, though, there is one particular unique mutation, and that's what I'm going to talk about today. So again, before I can tell you about what the mutation is, I have to give you a little bit of background about how eye color is created. And there's a pigment, it's a chemical called melanin. And melanin is responsible uh, for skin, hair, and eye color in humans. And what I'm going to present to you today is an incredible oversimplification of the melanin synthesis pathway. But I thought you would appreciate not getting the detailed biochemical approach to it. Uh, so what I'm going to do is give you enough information to understand uh, the questions that I'm trying to answer, but not, not the complete pathway. So you're only going to get a, an excerpt um, for how melanin works. So melanin is a brown-black pigment. And so if you have brown eyes, you have lots of melanin produced in your eye. The melanin is brown-black, and it produces the brown color that we see in individuals with brown eyes. Blue eye color is characterized by an absence of melanin. So if you have blue eyes, you don't have melanin, or you have very low levels of melanin in your eye. So how do you create the blue color? Well, actually, for animals, not plants, Blue color that you see is typically what we call a structural color. So it's not created by pigments 
dies or things like that. It's actually created by the way that light bounces off of structures. In the case of individuals with blue eyes, they don't have any melanin to absorb the light and create that brown color. So what happens is when the light enters the iris of the eye, it bounces off collagen fibers. These are fibers that are present in your iris. And the, what happens is those fibers scatter the short wavelength blue light, and that light comes back out. And that's why people that have blue eyes, they get their blue color. It's not because they have a blue pigment there. It's the way that the light scatters off the back of the iris, and what, comes, what bounces off the iris, the light that emerges from the eye, is blue color, very short wavelength blue light. To give you an example of how this happens, um, here's another example of a structural blue color. Um, anybody who's gone to one of those butterfly conservatories, you know those greenhouses where they have butterflies flying around, you may know the blue morpho butterfly. It's a really spectacular species of butterfly. They're about kind of this big with this iridescent blue color on their wings. Well, that blue color is actually caused by the way that the light bounces off the scales on the butterfly wing. So it doesn't actually have blue pigment there. It's the way the light bounces off the wing. And what this, this experiment's doing is just putting some acetone on the wing. And what it does is acetone changes the refractive index of light bouncing off the wing. And so it goes from blue and shifts to green. And if you let the acetone dry, the wing will return back to blue. Okay, so you're not looking at a, a dye or a pigment here. You're looking at the way that light bounces off the structures. And that's how individuals with blue eyes get their blue eye color. It's light bouncing off of structures in the eye. So this just shows you um, sort of the example with an individual that has high levels of melanin here. And what you end up seeing is the light coming out appears brown. Those individuals that have low levels of melanin, as the light comes in and bounces off the eye, what you're left with is the blue light that bounces off the eye. And that's why we have the appearance of someone who has blue eyes. It's because the light that's bouncing off that eye, um, the, the only light that's emerging from the eye is blue wavelength light. Not to make the rest of you feel bad that you're we're not talking about you, um, but the other eye colors are much less well understood how they're created. So those of you that have gray, green, hazel eyes, there's really a variety of factors that come into play in determining your eye color, including the level of melanin. So you can have an intermediate level. Um, but also things like the thickness and density of the iris and those uh, collagen fibers that play a role in blue eye color. So all sorts of different factors come into play to sculpt the eye color that you have. And that's why there really is such diversity in eye color, because it's not just one factor that plays a role in creating the color of your eyes, but actually many factors. So what I want to do is to explain to you how blue eye color and brown eye color are created, and then we'll talk about that mutation or change. So melanin, that brown pigment, is synthesized in specialized cells in your body called melanocytes. Melanocytes have within them a specialized organelle. So you all know about the nucleus and the endoplasmic reticulum and lysosomes. Well, melanocytes, these specialized cells that create the melanin pigment, have a specialized organelle called melanosomes. And within the melanosomes is where melanin is synthesized. People with blue eyes have the same number of melanocytes 
as people with brown eyes. The melanocytes have the exact same number of melanosomes, so those structures that, that the melanin is synthesized in, exactly the same in blue-eyed versus brown-eyed individuals. Okay. Where they differ is the amount of melanin that is found in those melanosomes. And here's a, a lightly pigmented melanocyte, the cell. Here's a darkly pigmented melanocyte. And so you can see how one cell has much more, has a larger accumulation of melanin in it than does the lightly pigmented cell. So the difference between blue eyes and brown eyes has nothing to do with the melanocytes or the organelle that creates the melanin, but it's based on the production of melanin itself within the melanosomes. So what I've cartooned here is an image of a cell, a melanocyte, and I've put here a melanosome in red. And inside the melanosome, that structure that creates melanin, there's a series of biochemical reactions that occur. So the amino acid tyrosine is converted to dopa, and then through a series of enzymatic reactions is converted into eumelanin, or just melanin. Okay. So within melanosomes, you have these biochemical reactions going on to create melanin. On the surface of melanosomes, there's this protein called OCA2. And what OCA2 does, we don't know. But mutations in OCA2 that make it non-functional are one of the reasons why uh, we have albinoism in humans. Okay? So that's what that gene does. Or at least that it plays a role in the melanin synthesis pathway, although we don't know where. So what scientists did was they wanted to ask the question, What's the difference between brown-eyed individuals and blue-eyed individuals? And so they screened the DNA of families of brown-eyed and blue-eyed individuals, trying to follow the DNA that was responsible for giving people the blue-eyed phenotype. And they focused on a particular region of the DNA, which encoded two genes. The first gene is called HERC2. And right next to HERC2 on the DNA of chromosome 15 is this gene OCA2. Remember, OCA2 is an important player in the synthesis of melanin. Okay, I just need to remind you a little bit, as a review, hopefully, uh, about the flow of information in cells. Just a reminder that DNA, right, encodes RNA. RNA is used, uh, is translated to make proteins. But the DNA, when it's transcribed into RNA, the RNA is spliced. So there are introns, and I've diagrammed them as sort of small uh, cylinders there, and exons, the large cylinders. Right? The introns, I like to think of them as the intervening sequence, or the introns are spliced out of RNA. So they don't actually form part of the final piece of RNA that codes for protein. So what happens then is that DNA is used as a template to make RNA, the RNA is, the introns are spliced out. You put the RNA, the RNA is spliced together, the exons, and then that's used to make protein. It's a basic flow of information in the cell. What they found is that when they screened individuals 
they found was a single nucleotide change in the HER2 gene. And that single nucleotide change was found in all individuals that had blue eyes, but not found in any individuals that had brown eyes. And that change is actually in one of these introns, one of these regions that's spliced out, so it doesn't even code for part of the protein. And the change was a very simple change. Just a T to a C. So in everybody that they screened that had brown eyes, they had a T at this particular position within the, X, within the intron of HER2. Everybody that had blue eyes had a single C at this position. One letter change. Not even in a coding region for a protein. Okay. In a region that's spliced out of a piece of RNA. And yet, that single nucleotide change may be enough to switch someone from having brown eyes to having blue eyes. So how do we think that happens? Well, it turns out that this sequence here is a binding site for a helicase. What's a helicase? Well, a helicase is an enzyme that unwinds DNA. And this sequence here, which includes the C, isn't a binding site for that helicase. So what do we think is happening? Well, remember originally I told you that you've got 3.2 billion base pairs, 2 meters of DNA, and it's stuffed into a 10 micrometer diameter cell, and even smaller if you consider the nucleus. So you're stuffing all, that, all those nucleotides into that very small space. So DNA is tightly wound and compressed. Okay. When DNA is tightly wound, as shown up here, it's actually fairly difficult to transcribe or to make RNA from that, because okay? the DNA is so tightly wound up. It's tough to get the enzymes in there to make RNA. So this stuff up here isn't transcribed very well. You don't make RNA from this very well. Helicases can bind to that DNA. They unwind it. When the DNA is unwound, now all the enzymes and proteins that are involved in making RNA can now interact with this DNA. And so what's happening is that the actual um, mutation isn't affecting HERC2. It's actually affect affecting the OCA2 gene. Okay? In people wild type, they have a T there. DNA unwinds. You make lots of OCA2. OCA2 is involved in melanin production, so you make lots of melanin. And therefore, you, make, you have brown eyes. Individuals with blue eyes have a C at that position. The helicase doesn't bind. The DNA remains tightly wound. It's not efficiently transcribed, so you don't make a lot of RNA. You do make RNA, but not a lot. So you have much lower levels of OCA2. You have much lower levels of melanin. Low levels of melanin means you have blue eyes rather than brown eyes. When they screened for this mutation, I told you every individual that they screened had it. So even individuals, from blue-eyed individuals from Turkey, from Jordan, um, 
from parts of Europe, wherever they looked, okay, individuals always had, who had blue eyes, always had a C at that position rather than a T. The most likely explanation for why that is is that there was one mutation that occurred in a person estimated about six to 10,000 years ago and that everybody inherited that same mutation from that individual. So if you think about it, if blue eye color arose independently a number of times, the mutation rate in DNA is very, very low. So the fact that you would have, um, everybody would have the same mutation, the same T to a C change, the most likely explanation is that it was derived from a single ancestral gene that was passed down. Because you could imagine, yeah, maybe at a real um, low frequency, maybe you do get a, a change there. But why T to a C? Why not T to an A or T to a G? So you would expect to see if blue eye color arose independently a number of times, you would either expect to see different nucleotide changes or you would expect to see mutations occurring at different sites within the genome because there are other ways you can shut down or lower the production of OCA2. But all humans that have blue eyes have that T to a C. The most likely explanation for that is that they're all descended from a single person that acquired that mutation. And that's about six to 10,000 years ago. So what I've uh, told you so far then, or given you an example of, is that idea about changing the punctuation of DNA. So we've just changed a single nucleotide, a T to a C, we haven't changed the amino acids of any proteins. They're all still the same. But by changing the punctuation, we've altered the level at which the protein is expressed. So with a T there, you get high levels of OCA2. You make lots of melanin. You have brown eyes. If you have a C there, you make very small amounts of OCA2, very small amounts of melanin, and you have blue eyes. So we've changed the way that the gene is expressed by just a single nucleotide. And that converts a phenotype from brown eye color to blue eye color. What I want to do now is to go on and look at another mutation in humans. Okay. This mutation, though, unlike the first one, which I call sort of the punctuation, not actually changing the, the, the gene sequence itself, but rather changing how that gene is regulated. The second set of examples I'd like to show you are ones that actually involve a single nucleotide change that alter the protein itself. Okay. And so the question I have, and I won't have you answer it, but what do these three uh, mammals have in common? So we've got a, a jaguar here. Big hint here, we have a black bear. And we have a red-haired human. And what these three mammals have in common is they all have a mutation in a single gene called MC1R. So what does MC1R do? Well, MC1R is actually involved in the production of melanin. 
But I have to give you a little bit more background on how melanin is actually synthesized. So there are actually two types of melanin. There's what's called eumelanin, which is the black and the brown, and it's what's responsible for a brown eye color. It's really what we were talking about in the first example that I gave you. There's a second group of melanins called pheomelanins, and they're produced red and yellow color. So you can see uh, what these, uh, the melanin granules look like. These are what pheomelanin granules look like. These are what eumelanin granules look like. And these are produced inside those melanosomes that we talked about, inside the melanocyte cells. Now, just like eye color, hair color is an equally complex trait in humans. Your hair color is basically dependent on the relative amounts of these two pigments. Okay. So all the sorts of different colors of hair that you have, I'm not talking about the dyed green ones, but um, all the different types of natural hair colors are created by a combination of those two melanins. Okay. And again, a complex trait. There are a number of genes that play a role in this. Again, you might think that it's a relatively straightforward thing. Uh, blonde hair is recessive, dark hair is dominant. Um, but in fact, two blonde-haired uh, people can have a brown-haired child. There are a number of genes that are involved in creating hair color. So it's not a simple one gene, one phenotype. Okay? Otherwise, you wouldn't have this incredible diversity of, of color. So multiple genes are involved in creating hair color. But it's the relative amounts of those two pigments that determine what your hair color is. Just a little piece of trivia, uh, gray hair or white hair is the lack of melanin. So when the melanocytes stop pumping melanin into the hair shaft, the result is gray or white hair. So as we age, the melanocytes um, slowly stop producing melanin in your head, um, in your hair follicles, and your hair will go gray or white. So we talked about melanin is produced in melanosomes, that organelle inside melanocytes. And this just shows you a melanocyte that's been stained for melanosomes in yellow. And so you can see the distribution of yellow within the cell. But you can also see these projections that are coming out from that melanocyte. And you can see that they contain large quantities of melanosomes. Okay, I'm sort of building to describe how, how your hair is actually pigmented. So these are the melanocytes. And your hair is actually built on a series of cells called keratinocytes. So you have the follicle of your hair, that's the, where the growing part of your hair, the part that sticks out from your head, um, is the dead part of your hair. Uh, but at the base of the follicle, you have keratinocytes, these specialized cells. And what happens is these melanocytes 
they send out these projections and they make contact with the keratinocyte. And what they do is they deliver those packages of melanin to the keratinocyte, which will form your hair. Okay, so these melanocytes make contact and dump melanin into the keratinocyte at the base or the follicle of your hair. And the way that hair synthesis works is, it is, is at the, the base or the follicle of the hair, that part is live cells. What happens is keratinocytes keep stacking up at the bottom of your hair follicle, and those cells are live. But as new keratinocytes get added to the bottom, it pushes the hair up, and as that hair moves up, the keratinocytes fill with keratin. These are uh, fibers, sort of the, cytos the skeleton within the cell. They fill up with keratin. Eventually, the cell dies, and that becomes part of your hair when it, uh, when it emerges from your scalp. Okay. And only about 1% of the protein in keratinocytes is actually melanin. But the melanin that's deposited in there from melanocytes, when that keratinocyte eventually dies and the hair starts to emerge from the follicle in your hair, um, that's what gives your hair its color. So what determines whether or not you have this eumelanin or pheomelanin. Remember, your hair color is dependent on the balance between those two pigments. Well, again, we saw this when we talked about eye color. Uh, tyrosine, the amino acid, is converted into dopa, and then dopa is either used as a substrate to make the eumelanin, which is the brown-black, or the pheomelanin, which is the red-yellow color. And the level of tyrosinase, which is an enzyme, the level of that is the rate-limiting step. If you have high amounts of tyrosinase, you will drive the pathway to the production of eumelanin, brown-black. If you have low levels of tyrosinase, dopa will be converted into pheomelanin. So depending on the ratio, or, or what ends up happening with that eumelanin versus pheomelanin is really dependent on a single enzyme called tyrosinase. Tyrosinase determines whether or not it goes towards the dark or whether it goes to the light color. So what controls tyrosinase? Well, remember that gene I said we were going to talk about, MC1R. MCR1 is a gene that, when activated, stimulates the production of tyrosinase and so will drive the reaction from dopa up to eumelanin. So MCR1, in some ways, controls whether or not which of these two pigments you make or which one you make more of. Okay. So MC1R is a receptor. I've drawn my big yellow uh, melanocyte here. On the surface of that cell is the MCR1 protein. This is the same as the thing that we just talked about when we talked about blue eye color. So this is the melanosome. MCR1 binds to a protein called alpha-MSH. When alpha-MSH binds to MCR1, MCR1 stimulates the production of tyrosinase, which will drive dopa into the production of eumelanin and the production of brown pigments. So when alpha-MSH binds to the receptor, you make tyrosinase, goes into the melanosome, and you make lots of brown pigment and you have brown hair, for example. 
if MCR1 is inactive, you don't have tyrosinase there. Therefore, tyrosinase is low, so dopa is converted into pheomelanin, and you create these red or, or, or yellow granules in the cell. So MCR1 really controls, in some ways, whether or not you make brown, black, or red-yellow pigments in your cells. So the three examples I showed you in my first slide all had mutations in the MC1R gene. Okay. Here's a wild-type jaguar, and you can see it's got that yellow-gold appearance. Up there's the mutant form of the jaguar. And you can actually kind of see, I don't know if you can see back there, but up here you can actually see the hints of the sort of spotted pattern that's present on this guy. So black jaguars, right, you're going from a gold-yellow coat to something all black. So what are you doing here? You're turning on melanin synthesis, or at least the black melanin synthesis. How do you turn on the black melanin synthesis? You activate MC1R. MCR, MC1R is on. You produce lots of eumelanin, and so the coat will go black. The actual mutation that these guys have is a 5-nucleotide deletion that results in MC1R always being on. So what happens is the coat color is driven towards black because okay, you're driving it to eumelanin synthesis. Second example. In the Pacific Northwest, there are actually two populations of black bear. As you can imagine, the more prevalent black morph, hence the name. Um, but there's also a very small population of this white bear. It's called the Kermode bear or spirit bear. There are only about 400 of these around. And they're derived from a mutation in black bears. Black is driven by the production of eumelanin. So in this particular type of bear, there's a single nucleotide change, a mutation in MC1R. And what that mutation does is it makes MC1R inactive. Okay? It's also a recessive mutation. That means it needs to acquire that mutation from both parents to have an effect. Okay. Although this bear looks white, it's actually that pheomelanin produces red to yellow pigment. This is the yellow end of the pigment. So in this case, it's more of a, a golden yellow. Okay, that's two of our mammals. Now we'll talk about the third mammal, humans. Red hair color is the rarest of hair types in humans, with about 1% to 2% of people, humans, having red hair. Red hair is caused by a recessive mutation, so you have to acquire the, the, uh, the gene from both your parents. And it's also caused by a mutation in the MC1R gene. So what's been found is that in individuals that have red hair, they have a single nucleotide change 
that inactivates the MC1R gene. The most common forms of changes, because there are a number of them, are found at these positions within the MC1R gene. Okay. But a given gene will only have one of these changes. But if we sort of surveyed people with red hair, most of them would have a change at one of these five positions within the MC1R gene. What those mutations do is they inactivate MC1R. And you need to have two inactive copies, one from a paternal copy and an inactive maternal copy to have red hair. So five mutations, five of those mutations account for most of the red hair in humans. But this is that MC1R gene. And what this just shows you are the mutations that have been mapped to it that affect hair color or fur color. So in red here are the places where there are changes in humans that lead to red hair color. The black bear, that Kermode bear that we talked about, is a change here. The jaguar is a change here, uh, but also a whole variety of other animals. So you can see things like uh, mouse, cow, pig, um, foxes there, sheep I think are down here. So a lot of times that you have changes in coat color, those changes are mapped to this particular gene. So what I want to point out or, or point out about this is a couple of points. First, again, a single nucleotide change in humans can lead to a conversion to red hair. Okay, so just a single nucleotide change is enough to create red hair in humans. And also that when we think about it in terms of a larger collection of animals, that you get similar means to a similar end. So all these different species here all have change associated with this one gene. Okay, so fur color or coat color changes are mapping to this particular gene in a variety of different species. So it shows how change, uh, there are certain genes that are very susceptible to, to change, or at least large phenotypic differences in an organism. MC1R is one of those. So just another piece of trivia in addition to my white hair story. I'll try and answer the question of why can't people with red hair get a suntan? You've probably heard that before. And the reason is quite simple. The mutation in the MC1R gene. When we think of skin color, okay, there are a couple things that determine the color of your skin. One is your genetics, which will give you a baseline color. But there are also other external factors that can affect your pigmentation. And one of those external factors is UV light. So when you're exposed to UV light, what happens is you get an increase in alpha MSH and an increase in expression of MC1R. What do those genes do? Well, remember, alpha MSH and MC1R are involved in inducing tyrosinase activity. So if you remember this slide I showed you earlier, you have the alpha MSH binds to MCR1, 
you activate tyrosinase, goes into the melanosome, and you produce a brown-black color. Okay. UV light from the sun increases the alpha MSH and the MC1R gene. You get more expression of those. What happens is you produce more melanin. So when you're exposed to UV light, you produce, your skin produces more melanin because uh, melanin acts as a natural sunscreen, so the melanin absorbs some of the wavelengths of UV light, and it acts as a natural protection. But remember, individuals that have red hair have a mutation in the MC1R gene. So what happens is that they, um, the MCR1 gene is non-functional. So when exposed to UV light, what ends up happening is although alpha MSH and MC1R are upregulated, since MCR1 isn't functional, you don't produce any eumelanin, right? So this gene here is not functional, so none of this happens. So what happens is dopus converted to pheomelanin rather than eumelanin, and you don't darken in the presence of UV light. So you don't get a suntan. So since humans with red hair have a non-functional MCR1 gene, UV light can't stimulate production of melanin, therefore they, they don't tan. So what I've described today is just kind of my overview or introduction into DNA. I wanted to give you a sense for what DNA, some of the characteristics of DNA, and how very small changes can have a dramatic effect on the organism.